Have you ever had the experience where you know you should do something like go to work on time or put the laundry away or finish a creative project or brush your teeth before bed, but you just couldn't do it? Everybody procrastinates sometimes, but for people who experienced abuse and neglect in childhood, procrastinating can take over your life. It can hold you back. It can make you depressed that you're stuck day after day in the same old rut, like a paralysis. Now, what is that? I've had this happen. I've spent months at a time in this place before, and I'll tell you, it is so demoralizing when it's happening to know that you're here in the world to do good, but something in you is not letting you do it. What causes it? I'll tell you, and I'll show you how you can take steps today to change. Okay, so the problem with procrastination is that it sabotages your will, your intentions, right? And I call this state paralysis because you literally find yourself unable to take positive action on your own behalf. And this can be in little day-to-day -day things like browsing the internet when you have work to do or in big things that affect lots of people in important ways like not getting around to mailing the utility bill and leaving the whole family without electricity. Now, that used to happen in the home where I grew up. You can also procrastinate to the degree that you ruin your relationship, your career, your integrity, and your health. And in fact, we've all flaked out on our good intentions in most of these areas at least once, right? So what's going on when we can't act? Honestly, I think that doing things, committing ourselves, spending energy, creating something out of nothing, the reason we put it off is because it's not really a big thing. It's really simple. It's because it's hard. That's why it's hard. One of the great joys of my life is in publishing videos like this one, right? And then reading all the comments and discussions that you guys contribute. I love doing this. But if publishing videos is my joy, and it's how my family also earns its income, then how come I spend days when I'm supposed to be preparing these videos and planning and researching and writing and getting the intro right and shooting them? It's like torture for me. I'm, I'm dying of avoidance during those days. And because making these videos takes days of preparation, really, like it's about six to eight hours per video <laughs> of just like focused creative work, that kind of work that's hard where you're making something out of nothing. Well, when it's time to plan the content, oh my gosh, I just get so interested in, you know, cleaning out the silverware drawer, combing the cat. I've done both of those things today. Finally, I'm making this video, right? And it makes no sense because releasing these videos makes me happy. But doing the work that leads up to that moment is just hard work. That's all. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing that complicated. It's just hard. I want so bad when I'm having to like plan a video. I just like I get this huge desire. I just want to lay down. I want to watch, you know, Hulu. But just like you, if I give into that all the time, my life is never going to go anywhere. So lying around, it sounds great. Uh, it's a nice fantasy that it's going to make everything better. But in reality, it's totally depressing. So what makes me happy is sticking to my intention to create videos, even when it's hard. I make good videos. I'm happy with them. Well, I make duds sometimes. But being engaged in creating and sharing and serving people in the world is what makes me tick. Now, procrastinating is a very weak solution that attempts to solve the problem of stress. It's stress, right? Stress is a problem. 
and it can make it seem like any minute now we're going to get all this energy and focus like i'll procrastinate now and then boom you know like a grenade i'm going to explode with energy i always think i wish there was like the creative version of the defibrillator you know those things they put on a person's chest when their heart stops and they jolt the heart back into beating i always think like what's the thing that's going to jolt me back into work and like get me back to the desk <laughs> and there is no magic thing it's just like no matter how i feel about it it's getting up and walking over and then sitting down in my chair here and doing it so another piece of that fantasy is the is the delusion that procrastinating is self-care but is it <laughs> no <laughs> no resting might be self-care but procrastinating is not self-care it's just like the worst waste of time it doesn't de-stress you it causes stress for people with childhood PTSD, especially when there's a lot of unhealed stuff, you're in a state of stress pretty much all the time. So everything is hard, and that is the vicious cycle. Stress makes things hard, so you avoid tasks, which makes you more stress, which prompts you to avoid tasks even more. And there it is. People who don't have childhood PTSD have no idea how much work it is for some of us to do ordinary things. It's exhausting and stressful just being in the world sometimes, right? People are stressful. Going out of the house is stressful. Sticking to a schedule is stressful. Expressing yourself is stressful. And hearing other people's opinions when you disagree with them, that can be stressful too. And making money, of course, is stressful. But you know what's more stressful? Not doing all of these things. And that's why when you feel overwhelmed and stressed, the solution isn't always to just retreat and give yourself permission to procrastinate. Sometimes the best way to calm stress is to just face right into it and take the chaos of all those unfinished tasks and the heap of to-do items and forgotten emails and unfinished projects and just get to work on them one at a time. You might want to stop thinking about stress and overwhelm to stop telling yourself that the solution is to avoid everything that's stressful for you. Just even like, just stop even labeling it stress. Just look at it as like, this is life. I'm alive. I'm doing the things that are part of my life. Because in the end, the path of least resistance is to just do the things, just do them anyway. That's how they get easier. You're making order out of chaos and it feels good. It feels inspiring. And that's how you get happier. So how do you get started? You get the urge. Sometimes, once you feel ready to just run out there and just do it all, right? Do you ever get that? That is such a childhood PTSD thing to go from, I can't do anything to just like, I'm gonna do everything. And there are times when it doesn't make sense to just run out there and go for it and force yourself to tackle your list in a day. I don't wanna discourage you if you've got that positive energy, but what can happen is you make a list of 20 or 40 or 100 things you start on the first thing and then you sort of expand it to the first 10 things and you're kind of doing them all at once and running around. And next thing you know, it's dysregulating you because you're tired and you're, you know, you're trying to juggle too much and you can't really like keep order of your, of your thoughts. You're just like, go, 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 go. And then you fall back into procrastination. So taking action at a good pace, a healthy pace, it's like a muscle. You can start to work it out slowly, just a little at a time at first, and then you get stronger. And whether you do a little at a time or go on a cleaning binge today, I'll tell you what the solution is not. The solution is not to give up on yourself. Don't identify with the trauma and mistake paralysis and giving up for being good to yourself. When you let yourself down, your worst behaviors will start 
just coming up. Now, I am aware that some people are like workaholics. So I don't want you to take this advice. And usually it's not the workaholics who would be writing me about this. It's people who are concerned about the workaholics going, but what about workaholism? It's not always good to keep going. And of course, everything can be done on the extreme, but you know who I'm talking to, you know who you are, it's the procrastinators, all right? When you let yourself down, your worst behaviors will start coming up. When you fall short of your own goals, you know what your CPTSD wants to do? It wants to find someone to blame. Is it gonna blame you? Is it gonna blame him, her, your parents, society, right? It starts to churn. And you start having random thoughts about how people are against you or you're going over and over some harm done to you in the past. If that's happening when you're trying to take action, check in with yourself. Ask yourself, is there something that I'm having trouble handling right now? Am I avoiding something? Um, am I actually angry at myself for not following through on what I need to be doing? And by the way, if you're not sure if complex PTSD is the thing that drives some of your self-defeating actions like this, you can take a quiz I developed and it's, it's right down in the description section. It's in the very top row. You'll see it right under the video. You can take that quiz and I will send you a list of really common symptoms of CPTSD and you can check and see if they apply to you. Your strength lies in action, action taken in right proportion to your capacity. So don't wait until it feels right for you to start brushing your teeth. All right, just take that one step and just brush your teeth. Even if you're tired, just for practice, just to stretch yourself. Then the next day you can do the laundry. And if you're still feeling good, you can reply to emails that people wrote you weeks ago, but that you never answered. You can schedule a haircut. You can pop into the gym that you pay for all the time, but you haven't been to in three months, all right? You can review your credit card bill for all the monthly subscriptions you forgot you're paying and see if there's any you can remove. You know the good actions that you need to be taking next. You may have to push yourself, not like a maniac, but some every day. You know that saying that you hear sometimes, don't be a human doing, be a human being. Well, that's a good sentiment. Having grown up in a commune, I'm always a little bit like skeptical of stuff like that. And the reason is because doing and being are both really important. All right, that, that like criticism of like doing, having something wrong with it. No, doing and being both important. And doing is how we earn a living and it's how we express ourselves. And how are you gonna become fully yourself if you don't do things? It's not just, the thing that you get done. It's the momentum that you build from just doing anything at all. And the more you're taking action, the easier it becomes and the more natural it feels to keep taking action. I procrastinated for years on the idea for Crappy Childhood Fairy. It was on my mind for two decades. I mean, it wasn't totally formed yet. I hadn't learned everything I needed to learn really to be ready, but it was on my mind. And I didn't have the inner power to do anything about it. So eventually I did, I'm so glad. And the thing that launched me into action was I signed up for an expensive seminar about how to share your own life story as a way to teach others like online. And I wanted to do this thing. It just seemed like this huge amount of money and I was terrified to do it. And what if I actually did the, you know, launched it, this started as a blog. And what if I did that and I got judged? Well, I did a little bit. <laughs> what if my work was bad? It is sometimes. What if I was successful and then I was committed to always having to work hard on it? That is kind of what happened, but I don't have to work hard. I like to work hard. I, I do procrastinate sometimes. 
It comes from the exact same place as anybody's procrastination. I just have a lack of power to do what I intend. But that was the big fear is that I'd get stuck. I'd, I'd have to be in action all the time and I'd have no escape. And so I find that I have more confidence in my ability to really step up and work hard if I can periodically just like take time away, lie down, not for too long, not that big like time waster lie down, but just go, hey, I can take a break anytime I want. I don't have to fear this. I don't have to be afraid to make a commitment. I'll talk about this in another video sometime, but making commitments is where life starts to get really like rich. So, so that's a lot what we're talking about when we take action. Some of that is just making a commitment to start a new project. And if you start the new project, I mean, let's say you open a, a shop, right? Well, now you got to go to work every day at the shop. And that's all it is. It's hard. You know, you can just foresee like even when I'm sad, even when I'm dysregulated, I'm going to have to go. But I really cannot emphasize enough that while that is stressful, it is so much more stressful to not take that action, to not open that shop when that's what you wanted to do. Imagine if I never did the crappy childhood fairy just because I was afraid it would involve work. Part of me would love to lay around and just watch TV. There's so much great TV out there, you know? And it seems like unlimited TV would really be nice, but most of us know what that really feels like, right? It feels terrible. Your life passes you by. It feels like it's passing you by because it is passing you by. You're not being you. You're not doing what you're meant to be doing. And what you're meant to be doing is really the only thing that's ever going to make you feel happy and fulfilled and have that feeling like, I lived well today. This was a good day. It was worthwhile. I lived my life. And for me, the things that make me feel that way are like connecting well with my family and, and people close to me and a little bit every day of that. Also to go be outside and walk around. Like I go take a walk outside. I feel like, yeah, I lived my day. And doing work that I know is making a difference in people's lives. That makes a good day. I like those days. And I used to feel envious of people who build roads for example, I don't know why roads, but you know, you get stuck in traffic and there's like road work there and people are working. And I used to think, God, they're so lucky. They go home at night and they're like, you know, today I built a hundred feet of road <laughs> and it's a real thing. And they did it and they know that they had it. And I often had work that it was a little less tangible, um, like, you know, working online, working in offices. And I didn't have that satisfaction, but really the road is not what it would have done it for me. It's doing what I was made to do. And finally I'm doing it. And it is so fun. It's so fun to, to do the thing that you were meant to do. I knew it. I knew it. One day I saw that seminar. I paid the money. I went and it was a lot of money and it was four days in a corporate hotel. Boy, that added up. And then on the third day I got stomach flu. I couldn't even go to the fourth day. It was kind of rough, but I started. And that was the day that the feeling that life was passing me by like went away. I started and I was using my gifts. I was on my way and I was, had to, to make use of all that money I spent on the seminar. I felt like I had to follow up and like make this blog. The blog then turned into the videos. The videos turned into the YouTube channel. Then there were courses. Now there's a membership and all that. It just grew and grew and it's just kind of carrying me along in uh, a thing that I had a vague sense that I wanted to do, but I couldn't even see it until I was kind of walking through the paces of it. And to this day, like, I don't know exactly where it's going. I just keep taking action. I keep taking action, try to show up for it. It can be hard, but never as hard as it would have been if I knew that I could create crappy childhood fairy, but I didn't make the effort. 
And that's why it feels like life is passing you by when you can't act because time is ticking and the world is just waiting for you to step up and take your true place in it. It's time, okay? It's time for you to do that. You can do that by taking action. You can do it with one, you can do it with a big burst of action, but I think it's a little more sustainable if you take small, consistent actions. Just take some every day, get them like worked into your routine because they will get you there too. They give you a little breather though between actions so that you can, you know, kind of go through your CPTSD dysregulation, get re-regulated, come back, equilibrate. Do you know that word? That means like to get things balanced um, so that you can handle the stress that life gives you each time you put yourself out there. That's what's scary. When you take action and you start pursuing what you really want, you're putting yourself out there. And so when you get criticized and you will, you know, you just will, and that's okay. When you are very clear about what you're trying to do, it hurts less. It doesn't like stop you in your tracks like it used to. So you need that strength, small actions taken consistently, dealing with what happens, equilibrating. And it's like super vitamins for childhood PTSD. If you were constrained from letting your light shine, your spirit is going to love doing this, these small actions, you're getting somewhere and accomplishment feels really good. That's what you were held back from with your CPTSD. When you keep taking those small actions, does success always follow? No, not always. But what does follow is adventure, the adventure of your life. You're in the game, all right? You're in the soup, as my mom used to say. <laughs> you may or may not reach the goal. You may not even want the goal by the time you get there, but the act of taking those steps will increase your aliveness and open you up to life in all kinds of ways that you didn't even expect, all right? You're open for business. Your strength is action. One of the most misunderstood symptoms of childhood PTSD, and I see this in almost everyone who was abused and neglected, and I, I've seen it in myself, especially before I recovered, and it's that we seem to gravitate toward people who don't have their lives together. And, and we have the capacity to do this even when we do have our lives together, except for that one thing, that we're attracted to people who drag us down. The people with whom you associate is a huge factor in how you turn out in life. So why would anyone do this? I wanted to share with you a comment that came in last week from someone named John. And I just was like, that, John really nailed it on this and I wanted to say more about it. So what he wrote was, um, breakthrough this morning. When you're a kid in a toxic family, they steer you away from making good connections with decent people. They don't want accountability. As a kid, you have magical thinking where you think your pain is visible. You want to be saved, but you're told that decent people are not to be associated with for fear their shitty parenting will be noticed, that your own parents' shitty parenting will be noticed. You carry this into adulthood by not making connection with assertive people of high morals. And then he said, I hope this message helps someone else. It helped me, John. Hey, I wanted to expand on this. This is one of the great mysteries for me is like, why do we do that? I have a long history of, especially in romantic relationships, being drawn towards destructive types or, you know, totally unavailable or self-destructive, either way, bringing my life down a lot. And people would just be like, why don't you just choose nice people? And the secret truth was I'm not attracted to them. They seem dumb to me or they seem 
two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional to me, and I don't relate. So I, I've thought it was that. I was told sometimes by therapists, um, you just want to recreate your childhood, like, you know, or, or by new age people who are like, um, it's your karma. You're just going to keep recreating the pain from the past until you work it out. And so the people who hurt you are your teacher. And none of that ever sat right with me. None of it ever sat right. What John said sits right. I think that is what it is. Um, my parents had serious problems with, especially around alcoholism and everything that goes with that. And they weren't very present. <laughs> and the problems at home were quite visible to anybody who visited. And so I, when John wrote this, I was just thinking back. Um, the first time I ever had a boyfriend, the, our first date was the eighth grade prom. And leading up to that prom for the months preceding that, first there was all the anxiety with my friends. Will anybody ask us to go? I was, I was 13 and the prom, when the prom happened, I had just turned 14. Would we get asked and you know, what will we wear? So my family was really poor. What I would wear was a big worry. And I remember, so the prom was in May, I think. And in February that year, I was visiting my dad and he, he died actually the next year. And so he was sick. He had Lou Gehrig's disease, but I was visiting him and he was still like able to walk and talk a little bit. And I told him about my worries about the prom dress. And he was like, I'm going to get you a prom dress. And my dad didn't have money either. He had, you know, the problems that my parents had were just devastating to their lives. And even though he was very talented and educated and had once done well, um, he lived in a garage. And we could, when we came to town to visit him, we couldn't stay with him and had to stay with relatives. But I loved him and he loved me. And all of the problems that he had are one thing, but his love for me is definitely an asset that I have. He just loved me unconditionally, thought the world of me. So he took me to the mall. And um, I bought a prom dress that was a very beautiful, cool, tiered chiffon um, zigzag pattern in maroon and light blue and dark blue. And it was kind of a disco dress, right? And I thought it was great. I loved how it looked and, and it had these little spaghetti straps. And there's a picture. Um, there's a picture of me sitting on the sofa at his girlfriend's house wearing this dress and looking very very good and shy. And I, I was still a little bit innocent back then. I remember the dress was $45. And that was so much back then, especially for him. I think he lived on unemployment. And in, yeah, that was, that was a lot of money back then. So it was this really special thing. And he also paid for me to buy these wedgie high heels. So I was, since I was um, not quite 14, to have high heels, pantyhose, the disco dress, the whole thing. I think I had on some blue eyeshadow, you know, I just, this was like a really big deal for me. The Captain and Tennille hair. And <laughs> when I got back to Arizona where I lived and where my friends were, they were like, nobody was going to wear stuff like that. They were going to wear these little um, kind of uh, Holly Hubby, Laura Ingalls dresses. I was a Laura Ingalls fanatic as a kid. And uh, I didn't know these things were available. Well, that ended up being another $60 for a dress like that. And I had this little white ruffled thing and it was, it was very pretty, had the shoes already, but I had to buy a second dress and I babysat and got the money to buy this dress. It was such a big deal. Well, it was a week before the prom and nobody had asked me. And I'm not totally sure why I would have been like not asked by anybody, but I wasn't, you know, I, I, I was 
I don't know, okay enough, pretty enough, but I wasn't asked by anybody and it was a week away and I was desperate. And it was, you know, at that time and place, it was all up to the guys to do the asking. In my English class, I had had a little bit of talent for writing and mid, mid semester, I was transferred into a journalism class that was really wonderful and exciting for me. A lot of people were good writers there and it was stimulating and I was writing a cartoon and I, I put out like a weekly cartoon. It was called Dr. Lightning, <laughs> Dr. Lightning. And it, I, I loved being funny. I was really into comedy. My big dream in life was to be a comedian. And I ended up being a comedian in earlier part of my career. And now this is really, <laughs> like doesn't feel like comedy, but it comes in handy <laughs> being the crappy childhood fairy. And I wrote this cartoon and through that class, I met somebody else who loved comedy, who was clever like that and um, liked my cartoon. And I wanted him to ask me to this eighth grade prom. So I did what 13 year old girls do. And I had, I guess by then I was just 14 and I had her go to him on my behalf and say, do you like Anna? Yes or no. And I think she actually did it with a note with boxes and everything and he could check the box and he sent it back. Yes. So she talked to him in person and said, will you ask her? She wants you to ask her. <laughs> and <laughs> And um, he said he couldn't because he was really poor and his mom, who was single, a single mom couldn't afford to get him anything to wear. So I sent her back, my emissary, and said, go tell him that's fine. I don't care what he wears. I would just like him to ask me. So it was Friday, the week before the Friday that was the actual thing. And, and uh, I was going to my locker, the bell rang, it was time to go home and I was devastated, like it wasn't gonna happen. She had already told him he had had several days to process this and then he was walking ahead of me and then all of a sudden he spun on his heel and then he came back and he goes, do you wanna go to that thing with me? And I said, uh, okay. And then it was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I had, I had now sunk all this money into the dress and the horrible thing about having my first date was that his mother was going to drive him to my house and he was going to have to come to the door and possibly his mother and we were going to have to ride in the car with his mother but they were going to see where i lived and possibly come inside and i became completely anxiously consumed with how i could possibly still have the date without letting them come to my house or see what's inside and i had this great friend named debbie and we're still friends and she she came from a household that was somewhat similar <laughs> and she helped me like strategize. How are we going to make it really fast? If they come in, have them come really fast, have them get out. But I was so scared, not of the date, but of getting found out about the, about the conditions of my homes. So here's what my house was like when I was growing up. It was piled high with junk. There was rotten food all over the counter. You couldn't eat anything. Um, it was there, there was little or no cleaning that ever happened and things weren't put away. There was a giant hole knocked through the wall of the living room into the garage that at one point in the history of the family was going to be a doorway, but had never been finished. It was just raw bricks and the smell of garbage and dirty walls. And what I was most afraid of is that my mother would make an appearance and she would show up really drunk. I was almost willing to give up my date to get out of this. So I, I worked it out. I waited by the door. I saw them pull up in the car. I ran out the door. I said, bye. And I just like said, here, let me in, let me get in the car. And I got in the car and nobody ever came in. Whew, I was able to hide my whole history, my whole life. Then 
we got there and there was this whole little march that you did, you know, marching together. What was it called? The Grand March or something at the beginning into the cafeteria, you know, where we had the dance. And there was the theme song that we danced to, which was Reasons by Earth, Wind and Fire, <laughs> which I had practiced with Debbie a hundred times, how to slow dance, how are we gonna do this? You know, all of this was new to us. And my date said, I have a friend who's a grown-up who lives a couple blocks from here and he has pot, weed. Um, do you want to go get high? And I was like, um, yeah, of course. And I didn't. I wanted to be at the dance. Gosh, I'd put so much into this for months. And that's what happened. We went to some guy's apartment and smoked pot. And um, I hadn't done that before. And it was weird and it was uncomfortable. And I was... Um, Luckily, it didn't do very much to me. Um, and then he gave us all beers and this other couple went with us. And it was just this like devastating disappointment. Now, unfortunately, the story goes on that several months later, like I did, he did become my first boyfriend and then he broke up with me. And it was uh, just like one of the most heartbreaking things in my life. I tried to hold on to that relationship despite all the crap and the crap fitting of the whole thing of me being a girl who was so excited and into this and just settling for going to some guy with a mustache and some crappy apartment, you know, who was, I mean, he had to be in his twenties. What were the, what were we even doing there? And that's where I got that aversion. That's where I got that aversion to decent guys. Thanks to Facebook. I know I'm friends with men and women who I went to school with junior high, high school. And What's interesting is they're really cool. I like them. And I feel much more comfortable with a variety of people um, now that I, a lot of my trauma is healed and that identity as like the poor girl, the girl who is not wanted or asked anywhere, um, who doesn't, you know, who takes the crappy jobs, who doesn't deserve to have what she wants, who suffers all the time and gets ulcers and smokes cigarettes trying to deal with the pain. That identity has melted away now. And I feel more comfortable with people. But here's the truth, John. I still feel most comfortable with people like you. <laughs> I feel most comfortable with people who know what CPTSD is, people who understand the oddball suffering that we have that's not really like what anybody expects who doesn't have what we have, people who have tender hearts when I describe what my past was like and who get it themselves. Because I understand you. It means the world to me that we have a tribe together where I belong. And I, I feel safe here and I hope you can too. What I hear over and over again from the people who come and watch my videos is, wow, I just came to this channel and it's the first time anybody's described what it's like to be me. Ah, it, me too, me too. You know, when I started putting videos out there, I didn't expect anything like this, but we are a tribe and we do understand each other. And some of us have gone on to great things and also struggle on, struggle on the side with CPTSD symptoms and we're all together working it out. You don't have to date people who are not good to you. You don't have to work for people who exploit you. You don't have to stay stuck in the outward signs of trauma. If you can begin to change and heal that identity inside that that's all you are. That's what I think. We're seeking the people where we don't feel judged and we feel safe. And that can be really hard with people who are just, just have it all together. You know, they just are put together every day. They move forward. They always have the right thing to say. Everybody likes them.
you know, that brings up a lot of pain for me, but that's where the daily practice comes in, is I'm resentful at the people who look so nice and have it all together. In my work life, I've met some amazing people, some like people who have accomplished great things in business and um, spirituality and recovery and so many parts of life. When you're loved by people who relate to you, you have a lot more capacity to be friends with the people who don't relate to that part of you. And it's really good to be able to do that because that's where, you know, the world operates. It's full of all kinds of people and it's a good way to be, to be open-hearted and open-minded about them, but to know who you are. So what is it that makes those people who have it together feel uncomfortable for us? And here's, here's what's become clear to me. It's shame. It's shame. I had shame about the house I grew up in. Uh, I continued to have shame about the ways that my life was dysfunctional, the ways that I could kind of keep it looking like everything's together on the outside. But if you got to know me or saw what was actually going on, you'd know that I was really dysfunctional in certain ways. And that shame made it simply unsafe for me to get to know people who would recognize that I was screwing up. I did not want to be seen for that. And that's why I have such tremendous respect for the people who write letters, like they're willing to be seen. There's a little anonymity there. But let me tell you, when they write letters and they write in and people get in there, like never make shaming comments to people who write in, only support those people. It benefits all of us to have a place where we can support each other including the mistakes we make, including the things that should be obvious, but they're not obvious when you have PTSD. That's why we have each other. So we get shame because yes, we get shamed for things that weren't our fault, stuff that, you know, the condition of the house we grew up in or behavior of the parents who raised us, perhaps things like that. But we also get ashamed of the stuff that we start to do. It's the stuff that we do that is where that, what I call earned shame, there's like shame that just glues onto you. And then there's this little bit of shame that's because you don't feel good about something that you did, right? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not telling you what you should feel ashamed about, but just that when I didn't treat myself with respect or when I hurt other people, I don't feel good about that. And so there's a feeling of shame so long as I'm holding it in and I'm not working it out. And when you don't have healing for your CPTSD, how are you going to work out shame? You need to be able to self-regulate. You need to have love no matter where you are on that journey of working it out, support, and you need to have people who get it. So I hope you find that here in this YouTube community. You can definitely find it in my Facebook community for members. Come be a member. There's always a link to that down below in the description section and courses. But support from people who get it is essential to start breaking the cycle of shame. I'm the only one who's like this. I don't know why I'm such an idiot. That's what I used to think. When you begin to solve those life problems that make you ashamed, then your head comes up and then there's room to start making different movements, different choices. I hate that word choices. It's so judgy, you know, that's not a very good choice. <laughs> You just kind of move about your life because we're all guessing, we're all improvising. Like, I don't know, what should I do next? But it starts to get easier and wiser as you get freer of the fear and resentment that holds you down, that is the sort of chatter of complex PTSD. That's what the daily practice technique I teach is designed to bring down so you have space for your better angels, for your smarter, wiser wisdom to come in and guide you towards a next step that makes good sense for you. And then, there's, and then the shame is healed. That's how it works.
less shame, more confidence, and you still get to have your deepest affinity with the people who get it about you. So I think that's pretty cool. I really love you guys for being here. I love you for having what you have and for expressing what it's like and for creating this community where people come and they just can't even believe that everybody understands what's going on and what they're describing so closely matches what they've been going through. It's a good thing. We are pioneers. We are a movement. So I'm really glad you're here. True or false, your life would have been totally different if you'd known all along how to date like a person who never had trauma and you had landed in an easy, stable, loving relationship. If you were abused and neglected as a child, chances are high that you've spent years of your life struggling with the effects of childhood PTSD on your romantic life. And this is one of the cruelest ways that the damage of a hard childhood shows up. We end up either alone or in relationships where we're not loved or not safe or just not happy. It's not supposed to be that way. It's possible to heal the thinking and behavior that keep activating old childhood wounds. If that's a priority for you, you'll wanna watch this video where I list 20 signs that the abuse and neglect that happened to you when you were a child may be having a negative impact on your romantic life now. And I'll tell you what you can do to start changing that. Number one, do you find yourself attracted to unavailable, destructive, or abusive people? That's probably one of the most universal signs that a lot of us have noticed are common for people who had a hard childhood. Number two, have you found yourself rushing into relationships? And this includes having sex, living together, and even getting married before you really know the person. That seems to be connected to having a, an attachment wound. The sort of neglect that you may have experienced as a kid can cause you to have very poor judgment about when and how to get into a relationship. It happens too quickly. There's an anxiety that comes up that you just want to push down and getting together feels like it's going to work. Three, at the opposite end of the spectrum, do you tend to avoid relationships altogether, even though you'd like to be in one? There's a word for that. It's called intimacy anorexia or relationship anorexia. And it's also very common for people with CPTSD. Four, do you habitually hide or lie about your feelings for someone when those feelings are romantic for fear that you aren't ready for a relationship or you need to change something about yourself before you can reveal how you feel or more probably or more honestly because you fear they'll reject you and you'd rather keep the fantasy alive even though it means that you'll remain alone. Number five, have you had a pattern of becoming obsessed with another person, thinking of them all the time, trying to find information about their daily activities on social media, scrolling or lurking, or looking for signs in things that they say or if they text you so that you can believe that even though they say they're not into you, they really are. Looking for signs is a key sign of something called limerence. And that's sort of a very amplified obsession or infatuation with somebody who you're not really with. And that is a key sign that limerence is going on is that you're searching for signs where there really aren't any. Number six, have you ever lied to other people or hidden the true nature of a relationship that you were having because you felt ashamed of the person you chose or of what was happening in your relationship? That often happens in relationships that are inappropriate or abusive. Number seven, 
Have you damaged relationships because of intense emotions, having outbursts of sadness or jealousy or anger when it doesn't seem appropriate? That could be a sign that you're emotionally dysregulated. It's also very common with childhood PTSD. Number eight, have you fit yourself to people and situations that were actually unacceptable to you? That is a trick that many of us learned as kids when we were in unacceptable environments and not being cared for, and we learned to make it okay with our minds. But if you get too good at that and you don't learn to stop doing it as an adult, you end up doing what I call crap fitting, fitting yourself to crappy relationships. Number nine, does the fear of abandonment or of being alone cause you to act irrationally? That fear of abandonment is often driven by something that is called abandonment melange. It's an intense mix of fear, rage, and grief when someone leaves you, or even when there's talk of the end of a relationship. And it's very common for people who are literally abandoned, either physically or emotionally, as children. Number 10, do you cling to relationships even when you're not in love? and not happy with the person? Do you stay even when you want to go only because the emotions that overtake you at the end of relationships feels too terrible to ever go through again? That's kind of all the childhood PTSD symptoms acting together and keeping you stuck. Number 11, do your relationships have an unusually high amount of arguing or conflict? And that's a little bit related to number 12. Have you ever been in a relationship where you were being physically hurt or being violent yourself? Number 13, have you found yourself going home with someone even when you knew it was dangerous or hurtful to yourself or to other people or likely to lead to an STD or unwanted pregnancy? That can be a sign that you're checking out, that you have some dissociation going on in a moment of stress when you're trying to decide what to do next in a relationship or with somebody you just met. And that's really common with childhood PTSD. Number 14, does getting sexual with someone trigger terrible feelings of panic or worthlessness or grief or overwhelm? Do you fill up with anger? Do you get the urge to flee? Those could be trauma responses that come up directly in response to intimacy, and often that's connected to a history of sexual abuse. Number 15, have you hooked up with so many people you feel ashamed? That can be a result of seeking to calm your childhood PTSD symptoms, but engaging in a self-defeating behavior that really just makes the symptoms get worse. And that's very common with childhood PTSD. 16, have you had a pattern of cheating on other people when you were with them or of choosing partners who cheat? That often comes from having a red flag blind spot where you can't really predict the problems you will cause with your own impulsive behaviors and you can't always see that somebody else is being dishonest with you. Totally common with childhood PTSD. 17, have you thought about or even attempted suicide because of a relationship or the loss of one? A history of neglect and abuse in your childhood can make your romantic relationship seem like the most important thing that's ever happened to you because you're attempting to fill some needs that were never met when you were a child. 18, have you suffered from reproductive disorders like endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease? That's correlated with a history of abuse. 19, when you're upset, is it hard for you to put your feelings into words? That could mean that you get emotionally dysregulated and neurologically dysregulated when you're under stress, and it can have a huge impact on relationships. That is common with childhood PTSD. Number 20, do you often find that no matter how much your partner tries to be there for you, you feel alone, unloved, or unheard? 
If you relate to a lot of these signs, you might be feeling shocked or sad right now, but you might also feel just a little bit relieved to know that childhood PTSD is a thing and this is how it can affect people. When people are abused or neglected in childhood, you see some very common patterns in the way that relationships become hard for them. And yes, these are harsh experiences, but the good news is these are normal symptoms that healthy people can develop when they weren't loved or supported or kept safe as kids. You're normal. And there are things you can do to change the trauma-driven patterns that have taken shape in your life. You can clear away the mental fog and the emotional hunger that in the past has made it hard for you to know what you want and to have boundaries around that. You can stop settling for crumbs and you can break out of the fantasies that have comforted you when you felt lonely, but in the end have left you feeling even lonelier. It starts with making a decision that you're willing to change. And the major ways that people do that is by getting therapy, going to a 12-step fellowship or support group, getting a coach or a mentor, taking a course, reading books, or, and this is the one we all get drawn to, but it seldom works, we try to tough it out ourselves. We hope that the next person we meet will be so wonderful that we will heal. And it's not that this has never happened for anyone, but it's not very likely. The very nature of trauma wounds is that they make it hard to see situations clearly. So you can end up in self-attack, running away, going into denial, acting out, or drifting off into fantasies of how great it would be if some particular person would be with you. Healing happens here in the real world, and the success of your healing goes way up when you have the courageous vision to own what you want in a relationship, your heart's desire, and when you have people who support you in taking courageous actions that prepare you to have that relationship. So courageous vision and support for courageous action. We're not talking about anything magic. We're talking about developing clear thinking and self-honesty so that you can stop the trauma-driven behaviors and take common sense actions to heal and change your life. What I have to tell you about this could be a whole book, and in fact it will be, but for now, if you want an assignment, I'll ask you to write down exactly what you want in a relationship. Like, don't be shy, write down what you really want. I know you might not get it. There are many things in life we want but don't get, that's fine, but write down what you really want. You're going to notice as you write that, that a lot of things in your life now are not leading you to what you want. In fact, they might even be blocking you. So if you don't consciously work to change a negative pattern like that, it's very likely to keep repeating. So as you write what you really want, not a specific person, try to avoid that, but just write, what, write the conditions, the characteristics, okay? The kind of person that fits you and how you want to feel in a relationship. Do you seek to feel really loved? Do you want to feel in love? Do you want to feel deeply secure? You can write that. Write it down and don't talk yourself out of what you just wrote, okay? You don't have to change anything, not today. Just allow yourself to see the words that you wrote and to feel what it's like to write it down, what it is you really want. There are dozens of things that you can do tomorrow about it if you choose to, but for now, let the honesty and dignity of you owning how you really feel to begin to heal you. Nobody likes being ignored and left out or just left behind. And so many people with childhood PTSD have it because of these experiences when they were small. 
Now, maybe your parents were alcoholic or addicted and turned off like a light switch when it was time to give you attention and support. Or maybe one of your parents died or was locked up or just left you like you never existed. And not only was this terrible to happen to you as a kid, to any child, but it can really muck up your adult relationships with anxieties and longings that can really drive away any possibility of genuine, stable connections with people, romantic or otherwise. Abandonment wounds push you into relationships too quickly. The slow pathway, you know, that just wasn't even encoded in your nervous system, but I promise you, you can learn to do it with some techniques, and I do teach that. But when you were a kid, you didn't learn the slow way. And then when you find yourself attached to someone you can't stand or who treats you badly, you may feel like you can't leave because your abandonment triggers kick in and make it feel like leaving would be almost worse than dying. So you go in too fast and then you can't leave. That's how people get stuck. And abandonment wounds can also show up in group dynamics where I'm willing to lay money on it. You've had horrible experiences of being ostracized left out, judged by peer groups. And I'll talk about that in this video too. I'm going to talk about why these wounds are so hard to observe in yourself when you kind of flip out on someone because your abandonment wounds get set off. It's like you're not even yourself. And the desperate and sometimes overly intense reaction to feeling abandoned, even when it's just a feeling and no one has actually done it to you in that moment, it's almost like a bad dream. What it actually is, is an emotional flashback, which is normal with CPTSD. An emotional state from the past comes back and overlays your present time experience. Someone walks out of the room when you're trying to talk to them and this whoo, tsunami of desperation and grief can come over you. That's an abandonment wound. And next thing you know, you're calling them names, you're threatening to leave, you're crying, it feels like your life is over. That's what we call abandonment melange. That's a word Pete Walker contributed to the literature. And it's such a good concept of the intense grief and rage and panic that can come over people when the feeling of abandonment happens. And it's drawing through this emotional flashback on what happened to them as a kid. And I want to talk about why that happens and how emotional injuries that happened before you even had language show up like that as just overpowering emotions that aren't connected to present day circumstances. And you don't even know where they came from, but they are upon you and they feel real. So let's just go over some common triggers that you see in people who were abandoned as kids. The really valuable thing about looking at triggers is that everything that is a symptom of CPTSD only occurs if it gets triggered. And that includes, you know, the neurological dysregulation, disconnecting from people, going into self-defeating behaviors of lashing out, running away, smoking, you know, there's so many self-defeating behaviors. But all of that sort of calms down. It goes dormant like a, you know, like chickenpox virus if you're not getting triggered. So you can't stop the world from triggering you but you can learn to calm how you respond to triggers once you know what they are and you have the tools. So let's talk about some of the triggers that, that can really get you when you have abandonment wounds. One of them is when somebody walks out of the room, if they storm out when you're in the middle of talking. This is a really normal thing. 
There are some people, some, including some people with CPTSD, but all kinds of people, when a conversation gets intense, how they sort of self-regulate is they get physical distance for a minute. So they might stroll out of the room for a, a minute. Now this is really different than saying, that's it, it's over, and they leave and pack a suitcase and they're out the door. But even that can be the same impulse, the same coping mechanism to flee. So somebody who is like actually in the relationship and will come back in the room in just a few minutes, sometimes walks out of the room, just goes, oh gosh, I just can't deal with this conversation. For a person with CPTSD, that can be so triggering. It, it brings back, you know, who, some memory that you don't even have anymore. You, it, when you didn't have words, like before the age of three or so, you can't really form memories. And so all you remember is the emotion. You can't remember the event. But it's not uncommon in people who grew up in unstable households where there was fighting or addiction or you know trauma going on, that that would have happened, that your needs would have been neglected, that you would have cried for a very long time in a wet diaper. And that's where these wounds come from. So it's not going to come back as, this reminds me of when I was crying all alone. Like you won't have that memory, but you'll remember the feeling. And the feeling comes up and since it's not attached to a, a you know, a cognition of what, what it was, of what the memory is. It just feels like it's happening right now. And you just think this terrible person who's making me feel this way, I have got to shut down this relationship. Then if you have typical CPTSD that wants to do that, you know, that has that reaction to things, maybe an hour later when you start calming down or when you start going into dissociation and the emotions are calmer, then you, your emotions come back and you go, oh dear, what have I done? Oh dear, what have I done? If you have the kind of CPTSD I have, you've probably done that before. You may have ruined relationships with it before. All right, similar to that trigger is the silent treatment. Now the silent treatment, there's minor forms of it where somebody's just like, I'm not gonna talk about it with you. And then there's one where you know somebody living with you or all the kids at school, they turn their back and they won't talk to you. They shun you. They refuse, you know, there's stonewalling where I won't talk about it. And then there is the silent treatment. And either way, this can be extremely triggering for somebody who was rejected or neglected as a kid. We can't control what other people do, but I would say the silent treatment is emotionally immature. It's not a good way to handle conflict with somebody. And at the extreme, it can be emotional abuse. So I don't recommend doing it or staying with people who keep doing it and don't intend to change it. All right, a third trigger that really gets people who were abandoned as kids is waiting, having to wait for somebody. Now, maybe you were a kid who got left in daycare until the last minute or even later, or your parents were separated and you sat by the window all of Saturday afternoon waiting for your dad to come and pick you up for his time with you and he didn't show. Waiting and not having your needs met is a big thing that can cause CPTSD in the first place. So a lot of people who have this wound any kind of waiting does it. And the thing is, when it happens, because, because it's triggering CPTSD, it simultaneously triggers kind of a fog where you go, I think I'm freaking out about getting stood up for this person who said they would come. And oh, then your mind plays a trick and goes, well, it's probably my fault. It's probably just me. And maybe, should I be mad about this? And I get a lot of letters from people where they're like, is it just me? And so sometimes, I or our community come in, you know, in the membership community that we have, people can pose those questions in our secret Facebook group. Like, is it just me? Or when this guy said he would call me this weekend for the plan and then he didn't call and I waited all day, is that bad? And everybody can go, yeah, that was bad. Maybe some people don't mind being treated like that, but you do and it's not a happy thing. 
and it's not a good sign for a relationship. And if it's something that you don't have a boundary around, I have good news for you. You can make a boundary around it. And then future people <laughs> won't get very far with you if they treat you like that. All right, number four, feeling jealous and getting gaslit about it. Now, I think this happens a lot um, when you're dating that you break up with somebody and then they say, we're just going to be friends, right? Let's just stay friends. And you think, oh yeah, I should be, I should do that. That's what people do. And then you have to watch them eventually get together with somebody new and pretend like you're the cool girl, but you're actually jealous and you have to pretend you're not jealous. Anything where something feels terrible to you, but you have to pretend it's not terrible is putting you in danger of like dissociating. And this is, this is something that's been very hard about the age of division that happens over social media is that people can do terrible things and say terrible things and you can't defend yourself because if you do and you say anything, you could get attacked by trolls. You could get canceled. We have thousands of people who are going into their CPTSD because they can't speak up and when people just make up stuff about them. And it's terrifying. It's horrible. And it is a form of narcissistic abuse when people do that to each other. So if you grew up with parents who were neglectful and for all the reasons they get neglectful because, you know, they have personality disorders, they're drunk, they're high, they're totally selfish. If that's what was happening, you got told all the time, you know, you got treated badly and then you're like, oh, get over it or, oh, stop being such a worrywart or, oh, you're just, you know, you're being so old fashioned. I got that all the time as a kid and I was very sensitive about it until I learned to calm those triggers a little better. But I can't stand it when I know very well that something bothers me and I'm shamed for being bothered. Now, like everybody else, I've had to be in situations and jobs where something really bothered me and there was nothing that could be done about it. You know, having um, a boss who didn't think that I was valuable enough to promote. So some of these things, it's life. It's where it is. And when that happens, you know, if you're an autonomous person, it's time to change jobs, for example, or you're dating somebody. And But I wanted to get to this thing where you get gaslit in present time, right? You're dating somebody and they want to hang out with their ex and you're supposed to be cool about it. You're getting gaslit. Like, what's the matter? Why are you so jealous? You just have jealousy. Jealousy is how people feel when they have an expectation of loyalty or monogamy and they feel threatened. And yes, I totally have met people where the jealousy is just kind of rampant. It's not really tied to reality. That can happen, but it's also something that is natural and if you've been told, like, you don't get to hold out for that, you actually don't have to agree to be somebody's an ex's buddy. And you don't have to agree to be okay dating somebody who hangs out with their ex. You get to actually have your boundaries about that. And you get to maybe test out, okay, I think I'm okay with it. And then you're like, I'm not okay with it, actually. And you get to not be okay with it. Don't kid yourself. Don't try to pretend you're somebody you're not, because that can just bring on the old trigger of being abandoned. It is a huge abandonment trigger to be afraid that somebody's going to leave you. And there's part of that that's just baked into relationships, especially in the early stages, especially when you're young, like that's, that's part of it. But how you can keep yourself healing and intact as a person with CPTSD is to be very clear with yourself about what your boundaries are about that. And to, to go very slowly in relationships so that you can, you can refrain from attaching too strong before you know if this is somebody who matches you in terms of what you need and expect out of the relationship.
Another trigger uh, for people who are abandoned is empty time when there's nothing scheduled. You may find yourself, maybe you overfunction, you fill up all your time. You do frivolous socializing just because the thought of being on your own on, for an evening is just makes you kind of anxious. Maybe a lot of feelings come up. So here's what's really great about the path of healing from trauma is it involves tools that help you make the most of the feelings that come up. So if you, it's actually very fruitful sometimes to be alone for an evening, even when you feel lonely, you sit down and you write your fears and resentments in the way that I teach. And a lot more is going to come up when you're feeling a little bit alone. Less will come up when everybody's waiting for you because everybody's going to go to the restaurant, right? You're going to be like, blah, 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 <laughs> and go on. But when you're lonely, that can be a fruitful kind of loneliness, is to go ahead and face what's in there. And some of my most powerful experiences of healing have been on those really dark nights of the soul when I was feeling so alone. So empty time can be used very fruitfully for something and that's healing. All right, number six, closeness with loved ones can be a trigger. It, it's kind of ironic, right? It's like not having closeness is a trigger, but sometimes when people really show up and look you in the eye and they love you, and for this, I always think about when I was 15, my dad died of ALS. And a few months before he died, you know, I had to travel from one state to another to visit him. And so the last time I saw him was four months before he died. And I will never forget. He was so sad when he said goodbye. He was standing in his driveway, smiling and waving and saying goodbye. And I wanted to run to him and just hug him. But the whole thing was so weird and uncomfortable. I just couldn't. So the intensity of his feelings of his wanting to give me all that love for the rest of my life was it was like a fire hose. It was like trying to drink out of a fire hose and I couldn't deal with it. And it was a trigger for me. So I was, you know, to have my dad die when I was still a youngster like that, it is a classic form of abandonment. He didn't do it on purpose. He never would have done it if he could have helped it. But first my parents got divorced and then my mom moved us out of state and, oh, I lost my dad in these stages. And it really, really affected me. And I have no doubt it affected how I approached relationships later. So I've still had time now to reflect on that love that I saw in his face and that I remember through his actions. And he wrote me a series of letters to let me know how much he loved me. He knew he was dying. We all knew. And um, I still have them. And from time to time, I take them out. And they're, it's, I can't, you know, it has to be very time to time. It's so intense to have somebody give you a lifetime of love like that in a letter. And I'm very grateful I have it. I realize some people never even got that. But I thought I didn't get anything. And then later I recovered in the letters and I realized he sort of encapsulated his love so that I, when I was older, I could get it. And even says that in one of the letters, I'm writing this down because I think when you're older, it will make more sense to you and, and you'll be able to appreciate it. And he told me, he told me um, what his work was, what he actually did at work and told me some stories from his childhood. So it was really great because there just wasn't time. I never got to know him as an adult. And I'm way older now than he was when he died, which is funny to think. And I still miss him. Yeah, still miss him. So, all right, number seven is watching other people enjoy social ease. Like, why didn't I get the memo? <laughs> you got triggers installed instead, right? So it can be a trigger 
for your abandonment when you see other people just not being so effed up in social situations and comparing yourself or imagining that they're okay. One thing I've learned over time is people don't always feel as at ease as you think, but some do. It's true. Some are just like, la la, everything's great. I'm confident. I feel like I fit in everywhere I go. Well, I don't. That's not how I feel. And so sometimes watching them, I start to compare myself and then I go into the abandonment thing. I'm going to get left out. I just know it's coming. I'll, I know. I'll take myself out preemptively. Did you ever do that? I did. <laughs> All right. Another trigger can be seeing other people happy and you feel like you, you should be happy. There's no reason you aren't, but you're not happy. You feel shame or ostracized or you just know in your bones you're never going to fit in. Sometimes though, you are ostracized because of something about you. Maybe you're prickly. Maybe you don't contribute enough. Maybe you have a vibe that's very stressed out or angry, right? And you might be in a state of confusion about why this is. You, you think, oh, these other people are terrible. Sometimes people actually are terrible and you just haven't had enough healing to choose people that are great, that you feel good with. Sometimes you go into blame, like you just don't feel okay in yourself and your reflex is to blame other people. And people have nervous systems. So no matter how polite or kind your words are, if you're feeling kind of like mm, with other people, they feel it and you will find people pulling away. And that has been a lot of my experience in life where if I were to ask people, how come I'm not included? Not that I did, <laughs> but if I did, they would have just said, I don't know, you're included. I don't, I don't know what you're saying, but I just didn't have a very inviting demeanor. I wasn't positive about getting together. I, I, I almost was looking for a way to get left out because I felt so triggered by the whole question of whether I was going to be included, you know? And so when you're healed, you have a little bit more like latitude to, you get those fears and resentments on paper about that could happen or has happened. And then you just kind of like give it your best shot and you just go, Hey, do you want to hang out? Or, Hey, can I tag along? And then you only have to like feel terrible and embarrassed if you, you know, <laughs> you still don't have to feel terrible and embarrassed, but they could actually reject you, but that's almost never what's going on. So we work on ourselves and then we work on being free enough to express ourselves and ask for what we want. There's always a component of working on ourselves so that we can be you know, nice, good people that people want to hang out with. And that's not a given for everybody with trauma. So I'm kind of talking about how a history of abandonment leads to a present day feeling ostracized. And, and it is so hard to be ostracized. It does happen for real sometimes. Sometimes there is um, an overlay. You know, sometimes people really are just being wicked. Sometimes your trauma wounds are kind of adding to it and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But for ostracization, a trigger is being in groups at all. Like just believing I don't belong. I never do. I'm uncomfortable. I'm triggered. I didn't get the memo. I don't like these people. They're also stuck up. They're also perfect. They're also normal. You know, whatever your judgment is, it's, it, it's, it's not a friendly vibe, right? Second one is feeling overlooked, right? <laughs> Did you ever do this? When you were in school and you raised your hand with an answer and somebody else got called on and then you go, <laughs> oh, oh no, I wasn't raising my hand. It's this weird shame that some of us feel about like offering ourselves and then getting overlooked. It's like shameful or something. If you stand outside of it and you just think of a little kid raising her hand in class, it's okay. Not everybody can get called on. 
And so you may have learned, don't raise your hand. Just sit there and act like you don't know the answer either, which is a way to take yourself out of the mix preemptively so you never have to feel ashamed about not getting called on. And this can be applied to jobs and relationships and friend groups and family stuff. And so it really takes a lot of courage to just put yourself out there for what you want afterwards. All right, another trigger, feeling judged, not accepting yourself. You know, if you're, if you're feeling judged by other people, I can almost guarantee you, you have a component of not feeling okay yourself about what you're doing, who you are. And your first order of business is always going to be to work on that, to work on yourself. All right, here's another one. You know you don't belong, but what happened was you were just crap fitting with this group anyway, just so that you could have people to hang out with. And isn't it funny how you can do that sometimes and just be like, I don't like these people. I don't fit in. So there you have it. You know, when you hang out with people just to use them to fill up your time, that can happen. Number six, feeling condescended to. That comes from fearing you're not enough, that you don't know enough. And yes, some people are very condescending. Ugh, and it's a trigger. It's a trigger I really don't like. I don't like, you know, when people assume that I don't know something and they explain it to me. And it happens all the time. And I used to get very prickly and want to tell them, look, I know that, I know. And my healing at this stage is I don't even bother. I'm just like, all right, thank you. Because I basically, I don't think it's very polite behavior, but I don't feel like taking it on or getting into conflict with people. I just as soon, you know, carry on and keep all my self-regulation available for myself to use. So what can you do about these triggers? The world doesn't stop showing them to you. The one thing that can change is your trauma-driven response where you shut down, you pull away, you lash out, or you avoid people, and you avoid your potential as your only means to control the damage that happens when those responses get unleashed. But that's not great, right? You taking yourself out is you taking yourself out. You can heal your responses when you feel triggered, and uh, even the abandonment ones. And it starts by learning to notice and calm those triggers. When you know what's happening, it stops feeling like it's just consuming you, drowning you. That it, it stops feeling so real, frankly. A little space appears where you see that you have a choice. And I learned how to do this with the techniques that I call the daily practice. And it's, it's made a huge difference in my life, and it keeps making a difference that I've pretty much devoted my life, you know, to sharing it with everyone who needs that. That's a lot what this channel is for. And that's what I love about YouTube. Hundreds of thousands of people are using the techniques now. And if you haven't tried them yet, I hope you'll give it a try. See what it does for you. When I ask people I coach, what is the biggest, most hard to manage trigger of your childhood PTSD? Most of them say abandonment. And this trigger is so strong and so totally takes over your nervous system and your perception that if you're like a lot of people who were neglected or abandoned as kids, you can't even tell when you're imagining that someone's going to leave you or if your awareness is really pretty accurate and you are seeing what's about to happen. All CPTSD triggers lead to some level of dysregulation of your emotions, your brain, your whole nervous system. And in my experience, healing is virtually impossible until you can learn to get re-regulated. So today I want to share with you a video about getting triggered by abandonment. And this is one of the videos from my dysregulation bootcamp, which is a 20-day course that helps you calm your CPTSD triggers so that you can get mastery over your emotions, your thinking, and your physiology so that you can live your life 
more in harmony with yourself, more regulated, more of the time. It's so powerful when you learn to re-regulate. If you're interested in the dysregulation bootcamp, there's a link below. You'll hear me in this video refer to a worksheet, but that's only available in the course itself. That's okay. I'm sharing this because I tell a story here of how triggers can get that power over you. And if you live with a vulnerability around feeling abandoned, my story could just give you some hope. I hope so. Today, we're gonna to talk about one of the most intense triggers for childhood PTSD, abandonment. This one is so primal because we're all wired to be loved and included in the tribe as if our lives depend on it. Because in any situation before the last, I don't know, 100 years or so, our lives did depend on it. We need our parents when we're born and we need dependable people connected to us throughout our lives. So just about everyone, and I, I know this because I've taught so many people to write their fears each day and I've heard the things that come up for everyone, being left by the tribe is a core fear. It comes out as fear of ending up alone and homeless and dying alone. And the fear isn't irrational, really. It's a standard feature of being a homo sapien. But for those of us with childhood PTSD, it can go way out of proportion to the situation, to the point of being crippling, and it can make us seem really unreasonable. In my childhood, my mother would leave the family for a month at a time, starting when I was a month old. She'd run off with some guy and not tell anyone where she was or if she was coming back. Now, she did come back, but the family would be in anguish and frantic with uncertainty. Uh, and this was going on all around me while I was a small kid. And then when I was about five, she'd sometimes take me with her and leave me for a moment in a lobby or for a couple of hours in a movie theater. And then she would not come back for 10, 11 hours. And the police picked me up once outside a casino. That's when I was six. I hadn't eaten all day. I had a fever. Now nowadays you'd lose your kids over something like that, but not back then. And I mean, I was scrambling to cover for her because of course I didn't want them to take me away from her. But you can see where I got kind of a weird thing around abandonment and that carried into my adulthood. And it certainly kicked up when I started having groups of friends, then boyfriends, and then working and trying to fit in. All situations where sometimes there's rejection. And before I learned to stay regulated, any rejection, I'll tell you what it felt like. It was as if I'd been injected with a toxic chemical. I'm assuming it was a release of some stress hormone. And I could feel that bad feeling just like flowing through my bloodstream. And I'd think, oh no, here it goes again. And I'd fall into a very dark kind of dysregulation and there would be nothing I could do to stop it. That's a trigger. So you'll be tempted on the worksheet to put a lot of work into understanding why you have certain triggers like this one, just like I told you why. And knowing this, that's possibly helpful. Maybe you'll better understand that your reactions to abandonment are not your fault. You didn't just make it up. But I'm gonna direct the majority of your focus to just remembering and noticing what it feels like when you're triggered by abandonment. What in your adult life recently has set it off? And what was it about those situations that, that seems to get to you so badly? So that's all in the worksheet, along with reflection on how you've come back from abandonment. Totally important, right? One thing that's gonna help you tremendously with dislodging those deep-rooted triggers that have an early and understandable origin is the daily practice. 
When you write your fears and resentments, you can pour out whatever is coming up on a hard day when your fear of abandonment got triggered. Fear no one likes me. Fear I don't know what just happened. Fear I'll end up alone when I'm old. And um, I'm resentful at my girlfriend because I have fear she didn't text me back last night and so on. Deep triggers aren't going to change because you merely decide to change. It's not likely anyway. They change when you can access that pre-language part of your brain where the abandonment hurt was installed. And language out through writing, not speaking, writing what that feeling is that's happening, the terror, the self-hatred, whatever it is for you. You write it, you meditate, and you'll find that the emotions are calmer and they're lying low for the time being. And your thinking is clearer. Like maybe you don't have to freak out and act jealous this time. Maybe you can forget about it. Or maybe you're sick of all the fear involved in a relationship and you want to end it. There's no right answer here. The point is that all options are open to you and you're no longer enslaved by a fear of that physiological hell associated with abandonment that limits so many of us with childhood PTSD. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.